Uh, I'm going to pray because we need to do some praying today, and then we're going to jump in uh, to our passage today, which is in James chapter 3. So I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for giving us today to gather, to spend time with you, to be in your presence with you. God, there are all kinds of different things that want to pull our attention. There are all kinds of different things that want to try and distract us and make a lot of noise in our world to make it so that we don't hear from you. God, would you help us to listen to you, to hear from you, because you have a word for us this morning. You have a reason why we are gathered here today, and it is not just to get to tomorrow. You have something for us today. You have work you want to do in and through and with us today. God, help us to focus on you. Help us to set aside everything else that's going on in our heads and hearts and to hear from you, to come to you with open hands, with open hearts, open minds. God, help us as we open up your word today. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to comprehend. Give us hearts to believe and give us hands and feet to respond to what you have for us today. God, we thank you and we praise you for all that you have been doing, all that you are doing, and all that you're going to do in and through us. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Did you know that people on average speak about 7,000 words a day? For some, that's a little more. For some, that's a little less. But words are a huge part of our lives. George Herbert said, good words are worth much and they cost little. The great Robin Williams said, no matter what people tell you, words and ideas can change the world. Samuel Beckett said, words are all we have. They leave a lasting imprint. They get ingrained into our heads and into our hearts. In my family, we're big fans of movie, movie quotes. And me and my little brother, we can go back and forth just talking, having a full-on conversation, just talking in movie quotes. Whether it's William Wallace declaring that they might take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Or the question asked on February 22nd, 1980, do you believe in miracles as the U.S. beat the Russian hockey team? Words can transport us back to a specific point, a specific time and place in our minds. The vows of your spouse on a wedding day. That speech by your coach at halftime of the big game. Your boss letting you know that you got that promotion. Or that reoccurring phone call letting you know we've been trying to reach you regarding your car's extended warranty. Words have an effect on us, and they linger in our minds and in our hearts. And that's why we have to treat them with great care. James has already given us some direction in, in this book as to how to use our words. He said in chapter 1, verse 9, we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. But honestly, we don't usually live into those words because we want to be the first ones to respond. We want to be the first ones, the quickest ones with the take. But this morning, as we enter into James chapter 3, James is going to help us realize the weight of our words and the potential effects they may have, both negative and positive. So let's pick it up in James chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a, such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, straining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and curse. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, bear olives and a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We need to watch our words when we represent Christ. This instruction on words and their importance and weight begins with a warning from James. It's an act of protection and care for the individuals of the church as a whole. James tells them not everyone should be a teacher. Now we've seen R.A. James, and when you read the New Testament, especially the, the letters directed to the churches, James and Peter and Paul, they're not writing and just pulling ideas and concepts out of thin air. They're writing in response to something they have been heard, they have heard or been told about what is going on amongst the churches or amongst the Christians. So James is writing to things he is hearing from the Christians who have spread about the land because of persecution. As they spread, the groups are taking hold and forming churches and groups throughout the land. As they leave Jerusalem because they're being oppressed and they scatter out into the land and now they're settling in these new places. And they brought with them their family, their livestock, and the gospel. And so groups are starting. Churches are forming. Someone needs to take charge. Someone needs to be the teacher or the teachers in these places that don't already have established leadership. And the role of teacher for some is enticing. It's luring. And if we aren't careful, it can be destructive, not only for the one to step into that role, but for those who they lead. And so James says, be careful. The role of teacher isn't for everyone. In fact, he says, those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Those who teach the word of God to others, when you do that, you are in a way speaking for God. Much like Moses and the prophets did in the Old Testament, today we don't necessarily use that Old Testament phrase of, thus saith the Lord. But we do the same thing. We open up God's word and we help one another to understand what it's saying. The potential of influence that a person can have under the guise of a teacher of God's word is immense. The weight and reputation and power of the word of God on its own supersedes anything man can come up with. So then, if you frame yourself as a teacher of this powerful word, that in itself gives you a certain level of power and influence. And that power and influence can be used for good and great things to see other people come to know God, to grow in their faith and accept and believe and be challenged and encouraged and equipped by the word of God. It is an amazing opportunity to be part of that. 
But we have seen time and time again throughout history, and even in the world today, those who take the word of God, distort it, manipulate it, and use it to abuse, oppress, and destroy. James reminds us that those people will one day face God and will have to give an account for what they did and said, and it says that they will face a greater and stricter judgment because of it. Not everyone is to be a teacher of God's word. And it's not to say you should not ever try and help or even instruct someone when it comes to God's word. But rather that when you do it, as you step into that role, even if just for a moment, consider that you are speaking for and representing God, however briefly that conversation may go. Now, some of you hear that and say, man, that's scary. That's intimidating. And so, you know what? I'll just never say anything about the Bible. I'll just never share. I'll never try and instruct. And that way, I don't got to worry about this strict judgment. I don't have to worry about offending God. It's fine. If you live that way, if your response to this is just, I'm never going to talk about the Bible with anybody, you are going to miss out on good works which God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in to glorify him. If everyone read verse 1 of chapter 3 of James and responded with, it's too scary, it's too big, I can't, I won't do it. If the only people who ever opened up and taught scripture and shared about God's word were seminary trained professors and pastors, how many people right now here would be here a professing Christian? Not a one of us. Because throughout the course of history, because throughout the course of history and time, men and women, untrained but devout believers, shared what they knew. They shared what God had told them about the gospel, about the good news. They taught what they knew, and the gospel was spread. James is instructing the Christians that not everyone needs to be an official teacher, preacher of that sort. But even if you aren't in an official teaching role, you need to consider what is your heart and motivation for instructing and opening up the word of God with someone else. If your motives are pure and your desire is to be a help, God can use you regardless of whatever kind of training you may or may not have had. And realize that if your motives are not pure, you answer for that reality at some point, whether here, now, or when you face judgment. Because God takes the manipulation of his word very seriously. It is verses like this that help to motivate me as well as just keep me in my lane when it comes to the role that I have in this church. I know the level of weight and responsibility in teaching God's word, which is why if you ask most pastors, the bulk of our week is given to sermon prep because we understand the weight of coming up here on Sunday and opening God's word for God's people. And it's also why rarely, if ever, you're going to ever hear from me some kind of brand new, never been, never before thought of interpretation of scripture. Because that's not my job. My role is not to be the most entertaining, funniest, unique commentator on God's word. My role, my job, what God has called me to do is to study, to ask questions of the text, and to prayerfully consider how to communicate the truth of God's word in our context so that we can hear it, respond to it. That's why many, many times this sermon included in writing it this week, I have been reminded and just been so thankful of the reality that I don't have to try and reinvent the wheel up here. I could stand on God's truth and let that speak for itself. It does just fine without me needing to be the most clever guy in the room, because I'm not. Dave Rico is. 
It is far more powerful. This book, this word is far more powerful and impactful than anything I could ever possibly add to it. But even if we have the right motives, if we understand the weight and responsibility and we have the right desires and we stay true to the text, James says there is no perfect teacher. He says in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. No one is perfect, including in how we speak. In fact, he says, if you found a person who does not fault and fall in their speech, you have found a person who is perfect and has the ability to control not only their mouth, but all of themselves. Now, whether James literally means you found a perfect person or just the idea of spiritual maturity, which is often how it's used in the New Testament, either way, he's drawing out the importance and influence that such a small part of our physical body has on our actions and our spirituality. That small part being the tongue. And that's what he talks about in verses 3 and 4. He has this illustration, this, this imagery that he uses of a bit in the mouth of a horse or a rudder on a ship. You know, there are times when we open up God's word, when we, when we go in and we study and we got we to do some real work, right? We got to do some real legwork to try and understand what's being communicated, to understand the context and the culture. We got to, you know, go to our commentaries, listen to sermons, read, trying to understand and ask questions of the text. And sometimes we got to do intense legwork. And then there are times like this when it is pretty clearly communicating what it wants to say. He says in verses 3 and 4, there, a, a bit can control a horse. The bit is the little piece of material that goes into the horse's mouth and it's held on, connected to the reins and held on by the rider. The rider pulls the reins in one direction or another and can control this huge, strong creature. I mean, a horse, an average horse, ranges from 900 to 2,000 pounds. We are not making that thing do anything it does not want to do unless it has been tamed, it trusts us, and we're able to get on that horse and control it with the reins and the bit. The same can be said of a ship. Driven by the wind, James says, or in our case, driven by some kind of modern engine, but guided and turned by a small rudder on the bottom of the ship that is turned one way or the other, and it can steer the entire ship. We're all together, right? The illustration is pretty simple, right? Big, powerful creature, small thing that controls it, right? We're all good? Yes? Cool. This is the tongue in our bodies, a small piece of our bodies that has great and powerful influence over us. The tongue is small but can do great things, he says in verse 5. Great in the sense of size, not in the sense of size, but in influence, and that influence can be good and helpful and building up, but it can also be incredibly destructive. And the Bible speaks greatly to our tongue, to our mouths, to the words we use. Proverbs twelve eighteen: there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs fifteen four: a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Psalm 34, 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. There is this nonsense rhyme that we are taught as kids. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. By what? Like the age of like, I don't know, two or three maybe? When we begin to comprehend language more and more, do we know that there are certain words certain phrases and the tone that goes along with them that can hurt and crush and devastate. The Bible is very clear 
And we could spend a long time this morning just reading verses about the power and potential of the tongue, of the mouth, to build up or to tear down. And sadly, the reason the Bible is so full of instruction and warning and correction regarding how we speak is because too often we choose to use our words in a way that tears down others. Paul goes so far in Ephesians 5 to instruct the church to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with their hearts. In that section, he says, put away what is evil and speak kindly to one another. If you have to, sing to one another just to make it so you're talking to each other with respect and kindness. And he's writing to the church and saying, this is how you need to be talking to one another. Not put away the evil, put away the anger, put away the lies. Speak kindly, speak, sing to each other if you have to. But the wickedness of our hearts, it seems, has this direct line of access and a quick draw to our tongue. And it uses our tongue for evil. He says in the second half of verse 5, James says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Our tongue is this burning, uncontrollable thing. An uncontrollable fire. There's been an uncontrollable fire burning in Canada for the last couple of weeks and weeks now. And I mean, the fires have gotten so bad in Canada that even us in Chicago have smelt and seen and breathed in some of the course of that. An unattended campfire can wipe out a forest just as a forgotten candle can destroy not only a house, but multiple houses. I mean, we're in Chicago. We know a lantern kicked over by Miss O'Leary's cow started a three-day-long fire that wiped out Chicago in 1871. Fire is powerful. It is dangerous. It is unpredictable and very often uncontrollable. Look at the way he talks about the tongue and the influence it can have in verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, straining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The tongue is fire. It can burn, destroy, and do uncontrollable and immense harm. It is a world of unrighteousness. Many sins, a lot of sins, most sins involve speech, the cutting down of another person, the lying, the deception, the evil that can come from our mouths. In Matthew 15, Jesus is speaking and, and talking about with the Pharisees about what does and doesn't defile a person. And they want him to handle certain, go through certain rituals. And he's talking about what defiles someone. And he says it has nothing to do with food. He says in Matthew 15, 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. What is in our heart that comes out of our mouths, that is what defiles a person. The tongue is the evil, destructive fire because it is the agent of action for the wickedness of our sinful desires. Because of the unrighteousness of our hearts, the tongue can set on fire an entire life. Marriages destroyed. Friendships abandoned. Churches torn apart. Jobs lost because of the cutting, burning, poisonous power of the tongue. What we say, how we say it, words can cut, wreck, and burn down lives. James says this fire finds its fuel, finds its source of energy from hell itself. He uses the word Gehenna. It's connected to the Valley of Hinnom, which was this perpetual burning trash heap outside the city of Jerusalem. And this thought in the Old Testament days that child sacrifices were made there. When bodies passed away, they would throw the dead bodies into this burning, this burning heap. 
the imagery, the smell, and the sight memory attached to this for the original readers would resonate with them. He chooses this word on purpose because he wants to say, and the Bible often uses this idea of Gehenna to say, look, if ever you wanted to think about what hell might possibly be like, if you wanted to have an earthly image of it, it is this burning, disgusting trash heap outside the city of God known as Gehenna. The evil destruction that the tongue has the ability to accomplish finds its beginnings in hell. It can rip and tear and shred and wipe out entire lives with no remorse or reservation. I'm sure we've all been there in the heat of an argument with a friend or a loved one, and all at once you say something. You're so caught up in the emotion that you reach deep down into that bag of tricks and you find just the right phrase, just the right words that you know will pierce to the core of that person. It's no longer about winning the argument. You want to hurt them. And you don't need sticks and stones to do it. Just the trust and care of a friend who at some point revealed their insecurities to you that you held on for just that moment. That honesty that they gave you that you now are using as a weapon to cause a pain that can last a lifetime. The tongue is a raging fire burning and charring anything it wants. As James thinks about the magnitude and the effects of what the tongue can do, he says there in verse 7, he starts to think about creation. He starts to think about all of the things, all of the creatures in creation. He says, every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. In Genesis 1, God gives Adam and Eve, he gives us humanity. He says, you have dominion over all of creation. You take and subdue it. You have dominion. And we have used that dominion. You can go to Lincoln Park Zoo or if you want to trek all the way down to Brookfield Zoo and you can see just about every kind of animal under the sun. Ferocious, poisonous, mammoth, destructive creatures that have been captured and subdued by man. Now say what you will about whether or not that's a good idea or if they're all going to rise up and take us out one day. That's a different discussion. James's point here is that all of creation can be tamed. It has been tamed by man. We can tame wild beasts. We can create systems to communicate across the world we can travel into outer space. But he says in verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. For all the power and control and dominion we might have, no human being can tame the tongue. There is an uncontrollable element of this little piece of muscle and membrane that resides in our mouths. Restless and full of deadly poison, ready to strike and destroy at a moment's notice. And James says we can use it for good, and we also use it for evil. We bless God, and we curse and cut down people made in the likeness of God. We sing praises to God on Sunday, and then we cut out, cuss out somebody who cut us off in traffic on Monday. We pray to God in one moment, and then we spread lies about somebody at work the next. We share about our faith in one Instagram post, and then we start arguments and heap hatred on somebody we don't agree with on Facebook. James says, people are made in the image and likeness of God. All people have value and worth and importance just by existing because you were created in the image and likeness of God. You have it residing in you regardless of your faith. 
And the wicked power of the tongue has the ability to take words and use them to minimize, invalidate, belittle people. People who have been made in the image of God, who are image bearers of God. We've seen this play out time and time again. Rhetoric and wordplay, using language to control and manipulate, to dehumanize and gaslight people, to change the talking points and distract from the heart of the issue. Look throughout history, from Nazi Germany to the Jim Crow South to the conversations about when does life begin? Is it a clump of cells? Is it a fetus? Is it a person? Who knows? They try and isolate and dehumanize. You can continue to look throughout the world today, the lowest points, the most destructive and deplorable acts committed by humans are all tied to individuals and groups with a quick tongue, a sly message, and the ability to control and influence people. Hate and vitriol articulated in such a way that speaks to the already present unrighteousness of our hearts. It turns this tucked away thought into an anonymous Twitter post into a gathering, into a mob, into an attack, into a war. Words matter. What we say and how we say it matters, especially when you have a platform, when you have somebody listening to you, any kind of leadership, any kind of authority. I think it's important that James makes a point to talk about. He's already admitted, look, we all stumble. There is no perfect person. We all fall short. We all sin. Nobody is perfect. We can all agree on that, yes? Nobody's perfect? Yes? We're all good? Okay. And even though we all sin, he makes a point to speak about how all people are made in the likeness of God. Meaning that even though we are born with a sin nature, and we have a sin nature within us, and we act on that sin nature, it has not ruined or destroyed the likeness of God that is within us. That includes you. Your actions, your inactions... The wickedness of your head and heart and tongue do not negate the image of God that resides within you. If you are a Christian, you are not the sins you have committed and you are not the sins that have been committed against you. You are a new creation. You are a child of God. If you are not yet a believer, if you haven't put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins... Let me tell you, you have worth and value because you are a person created by God. He formed you. He made you. He sculpted you. You weren't an accident. You weren't a lucky coincidence. You aren't here by randomness. You aren't the right clump of cells at the right time in the right place. God chose to create you. He chose to put you in this world at this time in this place. Intentionally, he is in control of all things at all times, which means you being here is not an accident and not dumb luck. He made you and he knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows the great stuff. He knows the good stuff. He knows the awesome stuff and he knows the wicked stuff and the deep dark stuff and the stuff you got tucked away that you hope nobody ever finds out about. He knows all of it. And even though he knows all of it, he loves you. He made you and he knows you and he loves you and he loves you so much that he would send his son to come and die for you in your place for your sins. Every person has worth and value. And yet we use our tongues, yes, to bless God and to sing his praises, but then we also belittle and devalue his creation. How can that stand? How can that possibly be the way we are living this out? James says blatantly, these things ought not to be. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. 
And he's writing to Christians. So we got to ask, how can the church claim to be a place of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness while simultaneously creating rules about who is and isn't allowed to be part of the cool kid club? How can we preach a gospel message of life and freedom while we still live shackled to our own hidden sins? How can we pray that God would bring a revival and heal our broken city, but then complain about how messy that makes our community? And it brings us back to chapter 1, where James talked about we can't just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. We are not to be double-minded, thrown, and unstable, but have our faith tied, sure, tied to the sure and steady anchor of Christ in the storm. And we've said throughout this study, if you've been with us as we've walked through James, that James gives us a lot of imperatives, a lot of do this. But we've been trying to walk past that because what he's actually speaking to is our hearts. It's not about go do this. Here's something to add to the Christian checklist, but rather what is your heart when it comes to this area? What's your motivation? What's your motivation for doing what you do? Do you delight in God? Do you enjoy him? And from out of that heart should flow a work that reveals your love for God and love for people. This idea of our lives flowing out of our hearts is once again at the forefront of James' letter in the final two verses of this passage. He says, A spring either has salt water or fresh water. It can't have both at the same time. A fig tree bears figs, not olives. A grapevine produces olives, not figs. These things are known by its substance. He talked last week about a tree and whether or not that tree, if an apple tree doesn't bear apples, it's not an apple tree, or at least it's a dead apple tree. You know it by its fruit. Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew 12. In speaking to the Pharisees, he told them, For out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. So what is it that's in your heart? Because what's in your heart is going to be what comes out of your mouth. So where does all that leave us this morning? We can't just walk away with, okay, well... I got to be more mindful of how I speak. I got to watch my mouth. I got to cut down on the cuss words. Got to be more intentional, be kind with the way I speak to people. I just got to do better at squashing this sin that is in my heart and keeping it from vomiting up out of my mouth. I just got to do better. Yes, be more intentional with the way you speak. But realize that in itself is not the solution. Behavior modification is only going to get you so far. James has already said in verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. He already told us the tongue is untamable by human standards. You can't do it. And so, yes, we go back again to chapter 1. As I said earlier, there is wisdom when he says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Choose your words carefully. Amen. But even in doing so, the tongue is wicked because it reveals the sins of our hearts. So what do we do? What's our hope? What is our hope? The answer is the same answer as it is to the first question of the New City Catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong both in body and soul in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. What is our only hope in life and death? It's Jesus. What's our only hope on the day of judgment when we stand before God? It's Jesus. 
What's our only hope in seeing our tongues get tamed? It's Jesus. What is our only hope in seeing the wickedness of our hearts be washed clean? It's Jesus. What is our only hope in anything? It's Jesus. Oh, Christ, would you change my heart? Would you reform and reshape and soften my heart? Break my heart for what breaks yours. Renew my heart. Rebuild it. Reshape it. May we pray the prayers of David in Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop. Wash me of my iniquity. Cleanse me of my sin, God. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Because our only hope here is that Christ would continue to make us more and more into his image and likeness. It is the work of the Spirit in us, not what we can do, but what Christ has already done and is continuing to do in and through you. So we pray to those, so we, we bring our prayers, we bring our confessions, and we pray as the father of the young boy in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I trust you. Help me where I don't trust you. Lord, my heart is for you. God, change the parts of my heart that are not for you. That's our only hope. For our tongues to be tamed, our hearts must be made new. And that cannot and will not happen outside of the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and we thank you and we praise you. And God, in the same way that we have tangible gifts you have given us that remind us of your love and grace and mercy, we got pretty tangible evidence of our need for that love and grace and mercy in the form of the words we choose, the words we use, the things we say, the thoughts we have. God, every one of us here has experienced the power of the words of another person. The encouraging, powerful, beautiful words that can build us up, that we cling to, that we hold on to, that we remember for long after they were said. And the ones that cut and pierce and negatively influence and change and shape the way we see ourselves. God, help us to be a people who build up. Help us to be a people who choose love and grace and mercy and kindness and joy. Help us to be a people who speak not out of the wickedness of our hearts, but out of the renewness of our hearts, out of the freshness, out of the grace, out of the gospelness of our hearts. Let our words be a balm of healing to a broken world. But God, we can't do it on our own. You told us as much. You told us we can't tame it. We can't control it. Not by ourselves. We need you. And God, it's more than just helping us to choose our words carefully. God, it's, God, change our hearts, soften our hearts, cleanse us. Take those moments, those places, those things that are within us, the wickedness, those places that we think that we're in control of. God, let go, help us to let go of those things. Help us to get out of the darkness and walk into your light. 
Give us a hunger and thirst to put more of your word in because your word is truth. Your word is good. And the more we read it, the more we study it, the more we learn of you, the more we hide it in our hearts so that we might not sin against you, the more it will clean out the gunk and garbage of sin that is in within us. God, we think about all the ways that we can serve you and make much of you. And sometimes we get overwhelmed. How do I do this? How do I share the gospel? How do I, how do I walk into this new life God has given me? How do I do? It starts with just, what are the words we're using with one another? What are the words we're using with strangers, with friends, with coworkers, with family members? How do we speak? Are we choosing to glorify you in the way we speak? Not only speak about you, but just in the way we speak. God, we ask that you would give us new hearts. Hearts that are made to glorify and make much of you. God, help us as we go forward. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Cleanse us from our sin so that we might make much of you and shine brightly as the lights of the world you have made us to be. We thank you and praise you. Amen.